Did you think the intrigue in this sport ended with the conclusion of the Breeders' Cup? A couple of major rules initiatives, one legal, one procedural, could have a profound impact on the future of racing. Could we soon see riders run races without their crops? It's happened. We'll discuss. And in politics, the wisdom is that as goes Florida, so goes the country. Well, how will the recent referendum on the possible expansion of gaming affect the racing industry down there? We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They race out. And they're off. As they move to the top of the straight, it's a hip-hopping finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. On the first Saturday of November, most of us here in the United States were understandably preoccupied with the Breeders' Cup. You may know that in the main event race, the Classic, French jockey Christophe Soumillon used the whip on Thunder Snow 16 times in the stretch as the pair managed to finish third. Soumillon was not cited at all by the stewards at Churchill Downs, but rules in Great Britain, where Soumillon runs in many of Europe's biggest races, would have mandated a three- to four-week suspension for excessive use of the whip. Whip usage has long been an issue in thoroughbred racing. Even the day after the Breeders' Cup, Thunder Snow's trainer, Saeed bin Sarur, said that the horse was happy and seemed unaffected by the use of the whip the day before. But for some in the sport and the casual audience, the one racing promoters want to reach in order to expand the sport the use of a riding crop doesn't pass the smell test. But while rules in different jurisdictions, like Great Britain, have tried to curtail whip use, it wasn't until Breeders' Cup Day, coincidentally, that a racing secretary rode a race that banned the use of the crop. In case you missed it, the event happened at Turf Fontaine in South Africa. Because there were no crops involved, the race is called the Hands and Heels Event. For this hands and heels initiative here at uh, Turfentine for the very first time, 1400 meters. And Awam has quickened up well on the outside, got into the hunt really quickly now. It's reached for the line a length and a half. Awam, the jockey showing his, him his hand here. And Awam is coming home strongly at reach for the line. It's left up to these two. And Awam breezes on by reach for the line in the final 50. And Awam, hands and heels right, Randall Simons. This no whip race was the first of its kind in South Africa. And save for a few apprentice races in Ireland, where the top jockeys don't participate, this might be the first of its kind anywhere. How did the no-whip rule affect the quality of the race? And now that it's happened, what will be the ripple effect of this experiment? For some perspective, we bring in leading South African trainer Justin Snaith, who did not have a horse running in that particular race, but who for the second time was crowned the country's champion trainer in July, the end of their season. So, Mr. Snaith, take us through the buildup of rhetoric and public pressure in South Africa that led to this race happening. Quite honestly, it's not even so much public pressure that uh, brought this uh, about. It was actually members of racing, so from horse trainers, 
to owners, breeders, actual people in the racing industry that were tired of just seeing tired horses maybe overused in, in, in sick work and stuff like that by choking. And quite frankly, even some of the jockeys are on board. So it's actually an entire industry that feels that it needs to be contained and sorted out. So uh, one of our champion trainers, Mike the Cook, who's actually raced all around the world, including the U.S., saw a series in, in, in England, a series of races with no sticks, and thought that it would be a good idea to implement that in South Africa. He approached our racing head, Clyde Basil, and uh, proposed the, the idea. And then they went to the NHRA, which is our jockey club, and the head of the, the jockey club all agreed that they uh, would be happy for, uh, his name is Arnold Hyde, they would be happy to put him on the race and see what happens. And uh, it went ahead. There were no major problems, and the horses actually ran quite quick times. And it all went smoothly, but obviously it was just to showcase it can be done, but also to show that less stick is better in the long run for the horse's injury, for the owners, for the spectators. We just need to find a medium where the punter is happy that enough is being done with the horse to ensure that you know his money's in the right place, but at the same time looking after the animal. So. Uh, it's all up in the air at the moment, and everything, you know, everyone's on board. Rules are going to be made stricter. That is definitely happening. That's the first thing that is happening now at the next meeting. A new rules will be brought out for a lot less sick use for horses. It's a worldwide thing, we feel. And uh, South Africa just wants to uh, get it done in, in black and white and, and then take it forward and then reassess again and then decide how much further we want to take it. Well, wait a minute. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's just get back to the race that happened. What have the riders said about it, the way the race was staged? Quite amazingly, they were quite happy. I, I mean, the times were quick. The favorite won the race, which was actually a first-timer that had never run in a race. And he was super impressive and certainly a horse that will earmark for the future. So it didn't stop him needing to be uh, hit from the race or anything like that. They carried the sticks to the start just to ensure that was at their safety. And then the ha- sticks were handed to the starters and they, they rode the race and quite honestly nothing went wrong. So what can you say? There wasn't any any complaints or anything and, and certainly to watch was uh, a lot better than watching, you know, jockeys hitting horses like we sometimes do. Times have changed and to, you know, ensure that the public watching the race is happy as what they see. Now, how important do you think the riding crop is to getting a horse not just to run fast, but run straight? I think a jockey can handle a horse if it moves slightly. I mean, that's, that's basic. But obviously, if it's severe, then you may need to, to use a stick just to get them to concentrate. But it does seem you have to lift the stick away from the horse. It's a very simple tap on the shoulder that is needed. Nothing more than that. And quite frankly, in a finish, a, a horse certainly doesn't need to be hit more than five times, if that at all. I mean, I, in our opinion, in the future, it'll come to a point where a jockey's allowed to, to carry a stick. 
but in the way that he handles it is another, the rules will be strict. You know, you know, come to a point where you can only order hit a certain amount of times, and if any, you won't be allowed to even lift the stick from the horse's shoulder. So you can push the horse out and give him a slight slap on the shoulder, but without lifting your hand off the rein. So the jockey will have both hands on the reins at all times. But this is very much an opinion uh, of mine, uh, certainly, and something that uh, we're all trying to push forward. But obviously, at the end of the day, it'll, it'll go to a room of, of gentlemen that will sit down and come up what's going to be best for, for horse racing in South Africa to go forward. Now we'll get to that question in just a second. We're chatting with two-time South African champion trainer Justin Snaith here on In the Gate. Now, how would you feel if you lost a race by a nose or by yeah. a head bob in a race where a jockey could not use a riding crop? Well, look, I've, I've lost. I've lost the biggest race in South Africa. I lost uh, the. We well, didn't actually lose the race. We did heat it, and the jockey on the other horse hit the the horse twenty-one times. This was about. 15 years ago, 12 years ago, and ever since then, I've, I've been a, a market to cut back on stick use. So I've, I've been on the other, on the other end, and, but it's what's fair for everyone. So we need to come up with something that will make it fair for every horse, for every rider, should I say. The bull riders, punters, gamblers, want the best horse to win, not the best jockey. So what we think is the less stick used, the the more chance of the of the better horse winning. So for a punter's point of view, it should be a better something better going forward. So it's very hard to take sticks away. It's a big move. I don't think that's gonna happen in the near future. Certainly the rules are being changed. It's happening right now as I speak. They are they are sitting down and rules are being changed. The jockeys that, that are the big headers are in trouble. They're going to, as you've seen in all countries, they, they, they're getting disciplined severely. Um, we, at this, how far are we going to take it? That's, or how far we'll be allowed to take it is the interesting thing. But as I said, the rules are very bad and are changing. Now, you mentioned the head of the sports governing body in South Africa saying there will be more of this cropless racing and rules are being written for potentially down the line. What kind of repercussions do you think this might have around the world? It's very, look, the good thing is we can, we can monitor it. I know the, uh, the UK racing are watching out of interest. They're watching the results, the, how the betting goes, all that. So, I tell you one thing, there's, there's never a problem finding a sponsor for a, a stickless race. There's one thing that's quite funny. In sports, you're always looking for sponsors. And when you mention that there's a riding crop, the sponsors seem to be easier, keen on getting involved. So that was very interesting. And really they're just going to put on the odd race on big days where there's no sticks and, and just see where we go with it. So there's support for it. And as I said, uh, I just don't think you can change an industry overnight. Some people are just, that's the way it should be done, and, and they're very hard people to, to change their minds. But certainly, as I said earlier, the, the, the changing of the stick rule is, is the most important thing at the moment. Well, the big payoff is, how much of an effect do you think eliminating the whip would have on how racing is viewed by the public, particularly the casual crowd? Well, that's what, you know, 
we see in Australia, they've had a bit of a lot of media about jockeys being hard on, on racing, on, on horses, and they curve falling that now. I see in the Melbourne Cup, most of the jockeys were, were given a few fines. I, I mean, I, I also watched the British Cup day, and there were a couple of jockeys there that were given a hard time. As I said, in South Africa, it's not so much those sort of people complaining. It's more that actually the people in the industry, uh, we, we've, we've come together and saying, listen, we don't like to watch a race where our horses are contesting and, and, and the, the sticks just seems to be used way, way in excess of, of how it should be used. And as I said, it's actually the people in the industry, uh, working in the industry that are pushing this forward. I'm sure this is not the last we're going to hear about this issue. Very interesting one. We'll continue to follow. Thank you so much, Justin Snaith, for a few minutes to discuss it with us. Thank you very much, and uh, wish everyone a, a good day. We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, an anti-casino amendment has passed in Florida. What will this mean for the racing industry? We'll discuss in just a moment. Welcome back to the In The Gate podcast. It has gotten a lot harder to build a new casino in the state of Florida. That's the result of an election day vote on an amendment to the state constitution. Now, in order for a gaming company to build a new casino, approval must come on a statewide ballot. So, someone wanting to build a casino in Panama City Beach would need to get approval from voters in places like Jupiter, Naples, and Miami as well. The bill passed with 70% of the vote. Full disclosure, one of the entities that fought hard for the passage of this bill was the Walt Disney Company, the parent of ESPN. Disney and the Seminole Tribe of Florida, which owns the Hard Rock brand, obviously are trying to minimize new entertainment competition in the state. From our standpoint, how does this development impact the horse racing industry in the state? Not only for the state's two major thoroughbred tracks, but also things like the quarter-horse match races designed to maintain a casino's license. For some insight on this bill and its ramifications, we welcome in Jose Felix Diaz, who served eight years in the Florida State House of Representatives until 2017. Since Miami is in his district, he worked on several horse racing bills during his time in office, and we welcome Mr. Diaz here to win the gate. So, first of all, in terms of competition for the entertainment dollar... It seems that this bill helps places like Gulfstream Park and Tampa Bay Downs, which already have casinos, to complement their racetracks. How do you see it? If you have an existing license in Florida, the amendment that just passed actually helps you because it limits competition. One of the threats that the legislature had when negotiating deals with gaming companies was that it could expand or retract gaming at will. But what this amendment does is it it forces the hand of the state and makes it a lot tougher for new gaming to to be expanded in Florida. Now, among those opposing the bill was the Miami Dolphins football team. They argued that the amendment would block any chance of legalizing sports betting in Florida. In May, of course, the Supreme Court essentially paved the way for the legalization of sports gambling. In voters' minds, where is the disconnect between the Supreme Court ruling and what the voters have said they wanted? Well, I think that the way that a referendum like this is written is what's going to decide how people vote. And I think it was written in a way that voters felt that they would have more control over the future gaming footprint in Florida. 
so I don't think that you know there was a, a really a place for them to analyze uh, how this amendment would affect their ability to have sports gaming here in the future. So it's it's all you know devils in the detail. I think a lot of people were probably confused by it, and it sounded to them as an opportunity to be empowered. And uh, usually, voters want to be empowered. So you don't think that this bill would prevent the legalization of sports gambling? It's not that I think that it wouldn't. I just think that when voters voted, they did not take that into account. Yes, I think that the way it's currently written, if the Florida legislature were to legalize post-Supreme Court sports gambling in Florida, it would have to go to referendum, which is, is, is not an easy thing for for one to pass. I and, mean, you know, you have to get support from the red and blue parts of the state. And Florida is a very divided state right now. Well, speaking of divided, I mean, even though you said that this bill would help the racetracks, Gulfstream and Tampa, they oppose this amendment to limit the expansion of casino gaming. They would like to expand their casino. So if it does shake out that sports betting is not allowed, according to this bill, if that happens... How do you think that would affect how Tampa Bay Downs and Gulfstream approach their business plans in the future? Well, it's no secret that the primary, you know, forces behind this bill uh, were Disney and the Seminole Tribe. They would love to have gaming curtailed in Florida, though some of the existing paramutuals, and there's only seven or eight that actually have slots right now, though they would benefit by not seeing... Um, existential threats from new casinos, it does limit their ability to expand their future. Uh, for the last many years, most of them have had at some point a conversation or two uh, with some of the bigger players out of Vegas that saw Florida as a you know, wonderful opportunity to have what they call destination resorts. And because uh, that is no longer part of the equation, maybe the valuation of some of these smaller paramutuals gets affected, and now they need to make a decision whether they're going to continue to invest in the current business model they have, or if they want to uh, just you know close up shop and sell to a smaller player. But the big, big home run, you know, grand slam opportunities will be limited now that this referendum's passed. Our guest is Jose Felix Diaz, former member of the Florida State House of Representatives. Now, one way to keep a casino license in Florida is to maintain a paramutual racing license. By law, known as coupling, a casino that already has a paramutual license can also couple it with a casino license by offering a certain number of live races throughout the year. For the larger outfits like Tampa Bay and Gulfstream, live racing is very much part and parcel of what they do. But at places like Hialeah, Oxford, Hamilton Downs, and Gretna, they offer match races with two horses, often of questionable background and class, in order to satisfy the requirement with a minimum of effort. I know because I've seen a lot of them in person. What effect will this bill have on these smaller casinos as they try to maintain and or grow these now even more precious casino licenses? Well, I'll separate the answer. So first of all, not only was there a referendum on expansion of gaming, but there was also a referendum on dog racing specifically. And that referendum disallowed or outlawed dog racing in Florida. So now you're absolutely going to have a parity issue between the paramutuals themselves or some paramutuals like the thoroughbreds 
and the quarter horses and the high lies, those frontons are going to have to stay coupled while the greyhound uh, frontons will be decoupled. Uh, this is going to change the business environment. Uh, some would suggest the greyhound outfits are going to be uh, in a more advantageous position to invest those dollars that they were putting into greyhound racing into marketing and expansion of, of their footprint. Um, now that this other referendum has passed on top of that, uh, maybe some of that uh, gigantic opportunity the former Greyhound paramutuals had is somewhat limited. I would imagine that though this amendment passed, what would be grandfathered in would be the number of slot machines that the seven paramutuals in Miami Dade and Broward have. Though a lot of these paramutuals only have 750 to 1,000 machines, uh, they actually are able to have up to 2,000 per state statute. Um, I am not an expert on the referendum, though I did serve on the Constitutional Revision Commission. But I will tell you, the way I read it, uh, it suggests to me that they do not need to ask for permission to go above uh, the the number of slots that they have right now, so long as they don't cross that 2,000 slot machine threshold. So if, if I was them, um, I would start expanding those slot machines uh, as soon as possible. But for the places we mentioned Hamilton, Oxford, Gretna, Hialeah. Well, Hialeah has slots, but the others don't. Do you see them pushing to try to allow decoupling as the Greyhound tracks are now getting? Well, they've been pushing for decoupling forever. In order for for decoupling to happen, uh, one can make an argument that you would have to amend the current seminal compact, which governs the state's gaming footprint because it's silent as to whether or not you can or cannot uh, decouple. And in order for you to do that, you need to make a lot of other concessions just because of the nature of the legislature. You have 120 members in the House. You have 40 members in the Senate. And when it comes to gaming, there's a lot of parochial interest. You have a lot of communities that will not vote for any changes uh, that will affect another community unless their community gets what they want. So decoupling is an absolute must for some of these communities. But it's, it's, it's a lot easier said than done. I compare getting a, a gaming compact passed in Florida to putting like a queen-size sheet on a king-size bed. Uh, no matter what you do, you try to get three corners to fit, and then when you try to fix the fourth one, something gets screwed up on the other end. And that's what stopped these bills from passing historically. And now with this new legislation, uh, it's going to be even tougher to pass gaming legislation in Florida. Oh, now I know why I can't get a queen-size sheet on a king-size bed. Why didn't you tell me that before? I could have told you. I saved you some money early on. Seriously. You know, as the world gets smaller, and we all know in presidential election years, the talk is, so as as goes Florida, so goes the country. So as the world gets smaller, developments in one area often have consequences in other parts of the country. What effect do you think the passage of this amendment might have elsewhere in the United States? Well, there's probably communities that have been looking at destination resorts where some of the bigger players, the Sands and the Gentings, they, they, they might have been holding some money and, and some of their liquidity uh, for Florida. Maybe there's some parts of this country now that, that have been looking at expansion of gaming that might become more viable now. That's an immediate thought that I would have based on the passage of this referendum. 
Very interesting. We'll continue to watch this. this certainly not the end of this story. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Diaz, for sharing this with us. No problem. My pleasure. Our thanks to Jose Felix Diaz and to Justin Snaith. In all my 26 years working here at the Worldwide Leader, one news story stands apart for me. The Tanya Harding-Nancy Kerrigan attack in 94 was as crazy as working in news could really be. I thought of that after a recent race at Churchill Downs, where in the paddock there was an incident. One horse kicked the favorite in the hip. That one was scratched. Can you guess who won? You shouldn't need a hint. To really invoke the spirit of Tanya Harding, the winning horse cost all of $50,000 to buy, while the favorite who was scratched cost $2.5 million as a yearling. But unlike Nancy, didn't shout out, Why? If a player in a stick-and-ball sport attacked an opponent pregame, you might not ever hear the end of it. But I guess since horses have minds of their own, no action was taken. One place where Tanya would have found a perfect fit. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. Get us at the iTunes Store or TuneIn.com. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.